good morning. I wear my glasses so I can see the clock back there. <laughs> the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In Hebrew, the word chesed is used to represent God's steadfast love, which will not let Israel go. Though Israel be faithless, God will remain faithful. This steady, persistent refusal of God to wash God's hands of wayward Israel is the essential meaning of chesed. It is covenant language. The steadfast love of God towards Israel is wholly undeserved on Israel's part. If Israel received the proper treatment, there would be no prospect but destruction since God's demand for right action never wavers. Strict, however, as the demands for righteousness are, God's yearning for the people of God's choice are stronger still. And it is this steadfast love, this chesed, that appears four times in Psalm 103. Many would argue that to understand any of the Psalms, one must view each of them with the whole in view. To move from the obedience of Psalm 1 to the praise of Psalm 150 presents many challenges because things are never that simple. For between those bounds, there's a drama of faith and life, of suffering and hope, reflected in the plunge from Psalm 1 into the middle of the Psalter in its world of enraged suffering, on the way to the steadfast love of God that can deliver from suffering. The Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Bible scholar, Walter Brueggemann, who I will bring into conversation in particular with Psalm 103 this morning, contends that there are two fundamental movements in the Psalms, the movement from orientation to disorientation in the life of the community, and the movement from disorientation to new orientation. And in particular, he identifies Psalm 103 as an expression of that movement from disorientation to new orientation. He says, the Psalms, speaking of this second movement, he says, the Psalms regularly bear witness to the surprising gift of new life just when none has been expected. That new orientation is not a return to the old, stable orientation, for there's no such going back. Rather, the speaker and the community of faith are often surprised by grace when there emerges in present life a new possibility that's inexplicable, neither derived nor extrapolated, but wrought by the inscrutable power and goodness of God. That goodness cannot be explained, predicted, or programmed. Now, he, Brueggemann, describes Psalm 103 in particular as a hymn of praise. Hymns of praise, he says, are those psalms that characterize a public as as distinct from a personal or an intimate song that is sung with abandonment and praise to God for the character of God's person or the nature of God's creating and liberating actions. Theologically, the hymn is a liturgical and unrestrained yielding of self and community to God. It's a disinterested, uncalculating seeding of life over to its pioneer and perfecter.
Now, in Psalm 103, in the first two verses, um, Psalm 103 is interesting because it's so familiar, right? It's, it's uh, the language and the, uh, the rhythm is sung often, and it's very familiar to the community of faith. So sometimes it's, it's easy to miss what's going on. In the first couple of verses, the self, we see the self summoning the self to praise. That is, the self is reminding the self of the fact that all of life must finally be referred to God's goodness. In verses 3 to 6, we're reminded that Israel always keeps the goal of justice visible. Most interesting is the reference to steadfast love in verse 4, which Brueggemann calls characteristically salvific language. Moving beyond even the, the, the lectionary reading for today into the rest of the Psalms in verses 9 to 14, he digs deeper into the description of God's chesed. He says the point of the entire section, verses 9 to 14, is to announce that Yahweh's way of working and standard of judgment is not like anything we expect. We may expect enduring anger, but we do not receive it. So now we see that the payoffs of Yahweh are not exacting, but stunningly generous. In verse 11, this unit speaks of steadfast love for the third time and shows it to be the basis of all of God's goodness. The result is that Yahweh shatters all expectations and does not treat us as we might anticipate. And I want to return to that later on when we take a look at the gospel reading as well. And then finally, the last Uh, sections of the chapter in verses 15 to 18, Brueggemann says, the contrast that the psalmist is presenting is complete. Quote, we're surprised because we expect God to judge according to human calculations. But these are not God's ways. Yahweh is utterly unlike humankind, which is transitory and unreliable. Apart from all of those norms, Yahweh is marked by steadfast love and righteousness, so long as the partner keeps covenant This God powerfully transforms things, operates from generosity, not calculation, and is free of all conventions. Uh, As an aside, I'll say that in a way, um, and and I think Brueggemann helpfully reminds us, this is a, um, this text, as as all the Psalms, are deep to the Jewish experience of faith and the the experience of, of, of Jewish covenant with God. And sometimes to hear stuff like, Yahweh is utterly unlike humankind makes us maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable because of our, uh, our understanding of God incarnate who dwelled among us. But uh, I want to allow us to sit with some of that holy otherness of God that the psalmist presents. Now, in conclusion, in Psalm 103, Brueggemann points out that it's no wonder that the concluding summons to praise at the end of, of Psalm 103 is expansive. The psalm began by calling the self to praise, but now it's calling all of creation, all earth creatures, all heavenly angels, all needed adequately to assert who this unutterable God is. Now the implications And the impact of God's chesed, or steadfast love, as we we see in this psalm, are truly universal in scope and in scale. So the question, at least, that I feel asking out of this text is, so what do we do with that? How do we respond 
to God's chesed? How does the church respond to God's steadfast love? Well, to give one picture of what the church's response might look like, I want to lift up uh, a document penned in 1985 called uh, the Kairos Document. In 1985, a theological statement called the Kairos Document was issued by a group of black South African theologians and lay leaders based predominantly in the township of Soweto outside of uh, or uh, Johannesburg. The statement, this Kairos document, challenged the church's response to what the authors saw as the vicious policies of the apartheid state. And in this document, Psalm 103 is specifically referenced to, with particular attention to verse 6. Uh, a quote from the Kairos document, When we search the Bible for a message about oppression, we discover, as others throughout the world are discovering, that oppression is a central theme that runs right through the Old and New Testaments. Moreover, the description of oppression is the, in the Bible is concrete and vivid. The Bible describes oppression as the experience of being crushed, degraded, humiliated, exploited, impoverished, defrauded, deceived, and enslaved. And the oppressor described as cruel, arrogant, greedy, tyrannical, violent. Throughout the Bible, God appears as the liberator of the oppressed, he is not neutral. Oppression is sin, and it cannot be comp compromised with. It must be done away with. God takes sides with the oppressed. And as we read in Psalm 103, 6, God, who does what is right, is always on the side of the oppressed. Now, earlier this year, an Easter message of peace and hope from more than 60 South African church leaders and lay theologians was sent uh, conveying their solidarity with Palestinian Christians. It was a South African Christian response to the Palestinian Kairos document. Recognizing Palestinian Christian history of keeping the faith in the Holy Land, despite the circumstances, the South African theologians urged Palestinians to be steadfast, now, last December, Palestinian Christians released their own Kairos document titled, A Moment of Truth, a Word of Faith, Hope, and Love from the Heart of Palestinian Suffering. In it, Palestinian Christians take the current situation in Palestine and Israel as their starting point in challenging theological interpretations of those who use the Bible to threaten our existence, trying to attach a biblical and theological legitimacy to the infringement of our rights. More than a dozen Palestinian church leaders co-authored this document as a cry of hope in the absence of all hope. Addressed to Palestinians, to Israelis, and to Christian brothers and sisters in the church around the world. The South African church leaders were right to point out the steadfastness of the Palestinian church. For the Palestinian church's steadfastness, or sumud, Dropping some foreign language here this morning. Chesed in Hebrew, sumud is an Arabic word. Uh, the Palestinian church's steadfastness or sumud is an apt description of its faithful response and witness to God's grace and love, and an apt description of a powerful form of nonviolent resistance to injustice and oppression. Now, sumud is an Arabic word that's often translated as steadfastness. 
and it's often referred to in the Palestinian context, and the ability of Palestinians to face Israeli oppressive policies without giving up. Sumud is associated with patience as well as resistance and perseverance. Now, as, as Sue mentioned, my wife Chris and I spent uh, three years with MCC as peace workers in the West Bank. We lived in Bethlehem, where our son Kai was born, actually. And we hear often much being said about that part of the world, much being said about Palestine and Israel. There's no shortage of reporting, of analysis, of opinion, uh, of, of statements of personal commitments to peace. One need only glance at recent headlines to discover this, especially with another push to reinvigorate the peace process. But there's much also that's not said. For example, in many reports of Israel's attack on an aid flotilla headed to Gaza earlier this year, there was a glaring absence of a backstory. Why were basic relief supplies needed in the Gaza Strip? There was little reference to Israel's occupation of Gaza, little reference to the fact that a million and a half Palestinians living in Gaza, the majority of whom are refugees, live in what is essentially the world's largest open-air prison with a poverty rate of over 70%, as many dependent on food aid. Or take the headlines perhaps that we read this morning. While we read about the U.S. and Israel's counsel to Palestinians not to miss the opportunity to re-engage in direct peace talks, recent house demolitions within the occupied territories and inside of Israel continue unabated and unaddressed. As MCC partner, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions asserted in a recent news release, quote, both the White House and the State Department will hold iftar meals. We're, we're currently in the, the, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan where, where uh, during each day of fasting uh, it's closed with an iftar or with a meal. Both the White House and the State Department will hold iftar meals, but the bulldozers and other expressions of apartheid and warehousing tell a much different story. Now, it can be argued that our efforts at advocacy and education should be aimed at identifying what British journalist Robert Fisk has called those too many mendacious statements of optimism and the reluctance to confront unpleasant truths that too often inform our personal commitments to peace. This would also seem to resonate with what Walter Brueggemann identifies as the reason, as, the, as an important reason for naming disorientation and disorder. I talked about the two movements that he, 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 he identifies in the Psalms. The movement or, or the, the place, the location of disorder and of disorientation requires naming because, quote, we may not be fully experienced the disorder, the disorientation, may not be fully experienced, embraced, acknowledged, unless and until it's brought to speech. And because we live in a society of denial and cover-up, these psalms provide a way for healing candor. Now, advocacy as such was discussed in the Kairos Palestine document. In addition to challenging those kinds of theologies that legitimize dispossession, the document points out the mission of the church to speak the word of God courageously, honestly, and lovingly. 
The military occupation of Palestinian land is called a sin against God and humanity in the Kairos document. It describes Palestinian livelihoods that continue to be devastated as more land is being expropriated for the expansion of settlements, for the construction of the 430-mile separation barrier. And as it cuts deeply into the West Bank, the wall forms the borders of what many call reservations or to evoke South Africa under apartheid, Bantustans isolated islands of land in roughly 40 to 50 percent of the West Bank to which Palestinians are confined. The Kairos document urges Christians to take a position of truth with regard to Israel's occupation of Palestinian land. It favorably notes that some Palestinian civil organizations as well as international organizations as well as some churches support boycott and divestments as a form of nonviolent resistance to the occupation. Now, however one chooses to confront these sorts of unpleasant truths, recognizing that it's not some notion of statehood that should motivate us as Christian advocates, but the well-being of all who inhabit that land, begins with a confession that from a Christian perspective, we are called first and foremost to practice and witness to a politics of jubilee one which brings liberty to the oppressed and a secure existence in the land for all. In the Kairos document, Palestinian Christians echo this call by describing a message of love and of living together to Muslims and Jews in the Holy Land, condemning all forms of racism and discrimination. The Palestine Kairos call is for a common vision built on equality and sharing, not in superiority, not a negation of the other, or aggression using the pretext of security or fear. It is only in this manner that justice and security will be attained for all. Now, for over 60 years, MCC, Mennonite Central Committee, has been present building relationships, walking alongside Palestinians and Israelis with an understanding of peace building as a shared work for justice. We have heeded calls that challenge us to work for justice here at home in the United States, a work that requires our attention to the historical and oftentimes unpleasant truths about what our roles have been in that conflict, a work that requires hope, courage, and risk. I mentioned wanting to, to make sure we get to that Luke gospel. Luke's, uh, the, the gospel text in Luke's chapter 13, I, I'd like to contend that we, we're seeing here in Luke's gospel the, the radicalness of God's chesed, of God's steadfast love, again, shattering all norms of ecclesial order. In fact, we see God's chesed uh, as an interruption. And I think uh, if, if we take a moment to, to sit with that text, it's, it, it might be easy to picture what's going on. Jesus in the synagogue teaching, doing what Jesus did. And breaking all of those protocols and procedures that exist for a reason, or supposedly exist for a reason. And from the perspective of the religious leaders, he obviously didn't appreciate those reasons. Nor did he recognize that although today it may be you know, some violation of, of Sabbath codes, tomorrow it's, it's going to be something else because it's a slippery slope that Jesus is on. 
He doesn't appreciate that slippery slope, nor does he appreciate the responsibility that goes along with being a leader in the synagogue. But as with any interruption, especially to the self, it is at the same time an opportunity for hospitality and for healing. And Jesus not only exposes the religious leaders' hypocrisy and their infidelity to Yahweh's chesed, he does so by making visible a woman, one who experiences multiple layers of marginalization in that context. And one might argue that this is what inevitably happens when we instrumentalize truth, when we instrumentalize relationships. We depersonalize, we dehumanize, and so we cannot see the needs that are right there in front of us that God has already called us to respond to. Like the woman in Luke's gospel, I'd like to present another all-too-invisible issue, or at least invisible to some this morning, and that's an issue in our midst um, of immigration. In fact, wherever you may be right now, you'd likely not have to look too far to uncover the plight of an undocumented neighbor and discover opportunity opportunities to respond to God's steadfast love, particularly as it relates to the biblical call to welcome the stranger. This sort of confession and this sort of repentance of our own histories of colonization, dispossession, and displacement should lead us to recognize that newcomers to the U.S. continue to encounter an unwelcoming hostility shaped by racism and xenophobia. They're too often met with suspicion, intimidation, isolation, militarized borders, raids, and migratory documentation backlogs. In recent years, the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, has conducted some of the largest workplace raids in U.S. history, causing fear, separating and terrorizing families, and disrupting entire communities. The ongoing construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall materializes this sentiment. There are an estimated 12 to 16 million undocumented immigrants in the United States today. The U.S. immigration system continues to be dysfunctional, lacking programs for guest workers and increasing documentation backlogs, proposing futile programs that don't address the root causes of these crises. For example, when coming to the U.S., many are simply looking for economic opportunity, for a means for survival for themselves and their families, fleeing the dire situations that their countries are facing, many of which are directly connected to foreign policies of our own country, including trade agreements such as the North American Free Trade Agreement. The economies of neighboring countries, such as Mexico, have been seriously affected by such trade policies, promoting economic disparity and dependence. Now, in closing, I want, I want to uh, revisit the psalm and revisit in particular something that, that Brueggemann uh, uh, articulates as an important, I would say, is actually an admonition to us as we seek to figure out how to respond to God's steadfast love. 
um, what does sumud, what does steadfastness look like in our context for East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church? Brueggemann, ultimately, he says, is that the Psalms, as a canonical book, are finally an act of hope. But the hope is rooted precisely in the midst of loss and of darkness, where God is surprisingly present. The Jewish reality of exile, the Christian confession of crucifixion and cross, the honest recognition that there is an untamed darkness in our life that must be embraced, all of that is fundamental to the gift of new life. He says the Psalms are a boundary thrown up against our self-deception. They do not permit us to ignore and deny the darkness, personally or publicly, for that is where new life is given whether on the third day or by some other uncontrolled schedule at work among us. Brueggemann goes on at length to, to argue that the dominant ideology of our culture here in the U.S. is committed to continuity and success and to the avoidance of pain, hurt, and loss. The dominant culture is also resistant to genuine newness and real surprise. This means that when we practice either move, either into disorientation or from disorientation into new orientation, we engage, kind of, in a countercultural activity, which by some will be perceived as subversive. So where the worshiping community seriously articulates these two moves, disorientation of new orientation, it affirms an understanding of reality that if we try to keep our lives, we will lose them. And that when lost for the gospel, we will be given life. Such a practice of the Psalms cannot be taken for granted in our context, in our society or culture, but will be done only if there is resolved intentionality to live life in a more excellent way. What strikes me, finally, is the call to freedom from fear, and freedom to receive the gifts of God's grace and love. As a church, as the church, as a peace church, whatever we call ourselves, the call to eschew fear is complemented by the caution to avoid those attempts to achieve an ecclesial or institutional triumph that was already achieved on the cross. Avoiding the temptation to misplace optimism, in the words of Robert Fisk, or uh, the temptation to an idolatrous triumphalism, God's chesed, or God's steadfast love, should move us to recognize those places where we continue to require not simply our better refined human efforts, but where we require God's spirit to hope, to risk, to love, to continue to walk with sumud, with steadfastness and faithfulness, and resist those forces that would have us deny the triumph of the cross seen in the resurrection, the triumph of life over death. <laughs>